0: Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with Lauren, my wife and a couple of friends, and we were spending time with a couple that had gotten, gotten married about 20 years ago. They were in college a couple of years ahead of me, and they got married a little while after they graduated. And as we were talking to them, we got into one of those funny exchanges that, for those of you who are married, you may have gotten into with your spouse, where they were talking about their different recollections of how the relationship had actually started. And they had very different memories as to how it actually started. What's normally being debated? I see some of you looking at each other right now. I'm not sure. Maybe there's a lack of clarity for you. We can, there's times for prayer during communion. We can get to that later. Sometimes we have very different memories. And what's, what's, what are we debating when we get into the, these kinds of different exchanges, which sometimes can become lively conversations? Aren't we really debating who is it that expressed interest and the other person first. When did that really happen? So with some questions, some questions, some couples, there's no question as to how that really went on. We know with other couples, and I can even see, again, some of you laughing now, in your own story, that might have been a question mark. Uh, you, you often hear something like this. You'll hear maybe a woman looking back on that time in college and saying, you know, um, we had to hang out with, with one of my roommates, and he and I, for three months, before he finally worked up the courage to ask me out on a date, and I just had to say, what are we doing? Where's this going? And then you hear the guy, so no, 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 no. I was actually going out on dates with you and your roommate for three months, and you finally just woke up to what was going on. Very different recollections of what's going on. Now, why is it that we get so passionate about exactly how these stories began? We know the reason for that. Because there are certain situations in life where the order and which things took place really matters. Now, we're going to be mindful of that this morning as we get to this passage in 1 John chapter 5. So for any of y'all that are new, we're finishing up a sermon series that we've been on for a number of weeks in 1 John 5. Today, we're going to try to finish this, and I'm going to just confess up front, we're not going to exhaust every verse in this chapter. In fact, we're only going to cover the first several ones. We're only going to cover verses 1 through 5. My desire and my hope is that we're going to come back to look more at this book later, but that's that's what we're going to do. Now, this is going to be really helpful for us to do this, these first five verses, for two reasons. Not only, one, do they help summarize a lot of the themes that we've seen in this book in 1 John, but second, we're going to look through this, and as we do, we're even going to look at one particular place that reminds us of one of the most important and surpri- surprising and profound Realities in the Christian life. And that reality has everything to do with the sequencing or the order of two events in the Christian life. And those two, event, those two events are our being born again, the new birth, and faith. If you followed along this series or if you have read much of John's gospel, you know John uses the language all the time of new birth including in the conversation we're going to look at where Jesus speaks with Nicodemus. And you know, if if you're a Christian, it can be really tempting to think about our own experience of new birth and to think this is something specifically that happens as a result of my faith, as a result of my belief. So I, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and then I'm born again. We're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at another place. We're going to, going to John's gospel. We're going to find it saying something that is very interesting and very surprising. And it, it actually seems to say that according to the scriptures, it's the opposite of that. And belief is something that can only happen because we have already been born again. We're born again, John seems to say, and then, then we believe. In other words, the Christian life is not ultimately something that we initiate. It is something ultimately that is initiated by God. And at the same time, we're going to see in this passage, one of the great mysteries of the Bible is that as as big as a role as God plays in in the story that is the Christian life, we're also called to have a role too. Or to to put another way, as we, we try to look at this passage, and if we were to try to hang our hat on one idea when it comes to this passage and we see what it says. You could put it this way, according to John, that the new life that God gives becomes the new life that Christians lead. The new life that he gives becomes the new one that we lead as followers of Jesus. And we're going to take a couple minutes this morning, think more about that, and then we're going to try to wrap up this series together. So let's, let's start looking at that first part now the new life that God gives. So if you have your Bible in front of you, we're about to look at this because we're going to slow down. We're going to look at verse one here because John says something here that's really interesting when it talks in the scriptures about this way that our belief relates to this new life. And in this verse in particular, it'd be very easy if, as we're reading along in the book to just gloss over it. So let's, let's look at that. Again, just a reminder where we are In this book, remember, John's writing to a group of Christians that have had some in their community saying some things that have been very confusing and very distracting for what they have been told about Jesus. There seem to have been a group of people that claim to have some sort of special knowledge about Jesus, to, to be enlightened in certain ways. And it was very hard for the Christians that were living in that community. And it's in this context that John's been writing them again and again about what they can know is actually true and how to live in response to that. And here's then what he says in verse one, follow along. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So let's look at that first half again. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And what we're gonna do for just a second is we're going to look carefully at the grammar, even in just those several words, because on one hand, at first glance, you read different translations, it could look like it's all saying the same thing. When you slow down and you actually look at it on a pretty close level, you can see these are different translations that lead us to two very different understandings of how God is, who God is, and how he relates to us. Let me just give an example of this. Some of you may be holding an NIV this morning, or maybe you're holding another translation that does something like this. Other translations translate the verb for being born in a way that's, you should know, not disingenuous. It's just not as precise when it comes to the original Greek manuscripts that we have. So for example, the NIV, rather than saying what these Bibles say, which is the ESV, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ Christ, has been born of God, which is the present perfect tense for anyone that remembers that from grammar school, the NIV translates that verb simply as an is. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, the reason that this is tricky when it comes to the translation and the reason that this other one is maybe not as ideal is because, again, specifically, you look at the Greek, this is a present perfect perfect kind of verb. So this is referring to something you might remember from grammar school that has happened decisively in the past. It has continuing actions in the present. That's what's going on here, and that's why there are certain versions of the Bible that translates it as has been. Versions like this one, ESV, or I believe the, the NRSV, the ASB. Normally, these are translations that are seeking in the work that they do to translate the manuscripts in as much as a a literal and kind of strict wooden you could say word-for-word manner rather than other translations which might happen to translate in sort of a more thought-for-thought kind of manner. Now for anyone that wonders, you know, is is this sort of question that we're taking up so far, is this just a question for grammar snobs? Here's the reason Why this is so significant? Because when you look at this verb, the tense of the verb actually determines the sequence of these events that it's talking about, doesn't it? Have you noticed that new birth and belief? So, for example, if it's simply in the present, if it it simply says anyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God, notice what that's saying is this thing that Christians experience this. Being born again, this is something that happens after or following or as a result of our faith, of putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. It's like saying, we believe, and now we're born again. Here's an analogy of like, this is kind of like saying, anyone seen Top Gun, by the way? I saw it for the second time last couple of days. Great movie. Um... It's like imagining us going to the movie theater and then saying this, this statement about the people that are there. Hey, anyone who has a ticket is admitted to the movie. I mean, that's the way it works for us, isn't it? Anybody that's got a ticket, that's who it's, is admitted to the movie. Our being admitted to the movie is dependent on whether or not you got one of those. If you've got one, you're in. Enjoy the movie. If you don't, you're out. Now... If the tense is different, if it's the the present perfect, this is much more like if if you happen to have a friend that's a celebrity, like an actor, an actress or an actor, or maybe the director of the movie. And maybe they've invited you to the premiere. So you've been mailed the ticket. You've got to have the ticket to show up. That's the only way that you could get in. It's like saying, whoever has a ticket has been admitted to the movie. I mean, you could insert the word already there. Whoever has a ticket, whoever's got one of those, has already been invited. In other words, it's it's the other way around. Again, um, whether or not we we have a ticket is dependent on whether or not the invitation's been extended to us. And that's the way it's talking about this in the English, or I should say in the Greek, in verse 1. To anyone who believes Jesus the Christ... To say anyone that believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God is to say specifically that our belief is, again, the result of or flowing out of something that has already been taken place, and that is the fact that we've been born again. Now, I, I know it would be totally understandable if, if you hear that presentation of, the, of those phrases and, and the way the translations differ, and you could say, okay... Are we, are we really, though, being fair to this? How do we know that this sort of verse isn't just an exception and we're maybe not going a step too far or getting over our skis by looking at this specifically and then saying that this is something that we should build other thoughts or ideas on? That'd be a great question to ask. I hope you're asking a question like that. And the reason we know that that's not the case is because the way that we see this language used not just here, but the way that John uses it in other places, including our gospel reading from John three this morning, and that interaction with Jesus with, with Nicodemus and Jesus. So I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, which is recall, we're only going to look very quickly at it, that interaction that they have. in John three, verse two, Nicodemus says to Jesus, "Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one else can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And remember what Jesus says in response to this. This ends up confusing, Nicodemus, would confuse any of us if we were there. Verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You wanna see the kingdom of God? You can't do that, Jesus says, unless you've been born again. Now, what's really important here is the fact that when he talks about seeing the kingdom, Jesus is not just talking about the idea of going to heaven. He's not just saying that's that's the only way that you can go to heaven is is by being born again. He's talking about the kingdom, and we know as he talks about the kingdom, the kingdom is is one sense in something that is to come. It's another thing he says in the gospels that's already come, already has come. Seeing the kingdom, I mean you probably notice in John's gospel, there's this motif that he's working with over and over again of sight. Who has sight? who doesn't have sight, who sees, who doesn't see. And to see the kingdom is to be able to perceive or see the spiritual realities associated with the kingdom of God and especially through Jesus. And so unless one has been born again, we cannot do these things. We cannot recognize him as the Messiah. If someone's gonna believe in Jesus Christ, what do they have to do? They have to know their need for him. Well, how do they know their need for him unless one, they're convicted of their sin, and how can they be convicted of their sin unless they know how, how holy Jesus is and, and the life that God has called us to, but that's only possible through what he does on the cross. These are things that can't be known and can't be perceived unless Jesus says here in John 3, one's been born again. And so what I want to do is for any of us in the last two or three minutes that have gotten lost as we've been talking about this, I want to summarize what we're seeing here in John 3 in what, and what we're seeing in John 5.1, because this is both eye-opening, and it's very counterintuitive. Surprising. And, and here's how it goes. If you're a Christian, okay, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, well, I should acknowledge some of us were raised in the church. We were raised by parents that love Jesus. And all we have ever known is that we also love Jesus. That's not been the case, I know, at the same time for all of us. And there are a number of us who, yes, we were also raised in the church, but we, we didn't really have clarity. We didn't really see who Jesus really is, and we didn't really know our need for him until someone once spoke to us about him and gave us that clarity through what we would call sharing the gospel. Many of you can remember what the first time was like when that happened for you and when you responded in faith. might have been at a camp. That, for me, it was at a place that was a Young Life camp. Might have been a Billy Graham rally that you were at, or maybe that you watched on TV. Might have been going to something like an alpha course or a Christianity Explored. This can happen in all different kinds of ways. And in that moment, again, we had clarity on who he was. We put our faith in him and our lives changed. And, And sometimes we know that change was immediate. Everybody around us was like, whoa, something is different about you. And other times the the change was an inward change that was equally profound, but it wasn't as visible. And still at the same time, when we try to trace our own journey of who we are in God, we know it goes back to something that took place during that precise moment. And now where's all this going? If that's you, which has been the case for me, it is very possible to think that the change that took place inside of us is something that primarily happened after we were born again. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again, and then we're a new person. And what John's showing us here in 1 John 5 and even in John chapter 3 is that it's actually the opposite, that, that when we responded, when we said, God, when we, when we had that sense, we had to walk down that aisle or we just, we knew in our hearts as we were reading that book or listening to that speaker that what they were saying is true. What he's saying is that, that could only take place by the power of the Holy Spirit working through something that has already happened, that has already taken place, that God was softening our hearts. He was at work in us, and he was showing us who we really are and in, in all of our junk and all of our flaws and how great and how holy he is. There's no way we could have perceived those things about the kingdom of God unless Jesus tells Nicodemus we had already been born again. Now, if you—if that sounds very abstract. I know that can sound very um, theoretical. Let me just try to paint a picture of this very quickly. If we were to try to paint a picture of the Christian life and the events of the Christian life and to describe them as a train and a train of composed of different cars, it is very easy, depending on our story, is it not, to, to look at that life and think, you know what, the, the first car in that train that has been my life was the car of faith and professing belief. And the next one being that that car of, of, of new life, being born again. And then the other ones subsequently after that being following Jesus Christ with all of our lives, laying down our lives for him. And what he's saying here and what the Bible is saying is something even more challenging than that. In fact, the first car isn't even our new birth. The, you go to somewhere like the first chapter of Ephesians, verse 14, the first car is when before the foundations of the earth God set us aside as his people. He set us aside. And then ultimately after that, he gave us new life. And we profess our faith in him. And then we respond to that call of being his disciples and laying down our lives for him, taking up our cross and following him. That's what we're talking about here. The... The new life, or I should say the life, the new life uh, that God gives is something that that didn't start with us. And and, and why is this so significant? I want to go here. If, If we would say it started with us and even our own in humility profession of faith, what we've got to be able to say is that one day before we stand before God Almighty, when we look at him, and if he were to look at us and say, Brian, or your name, and why is it that you're here? If it started with our faith, we've got to be able to look him in the eye and say, it's because of me. It's because of something that I did. Anyone, anyone want to be ready to be prepared to just look God in the eye and say that? I don't think any of us wants to be able to do that. On the other hand, what John's showing us is that if it started with him, if in this dance, That is our life with God. We didn't take the first step. He took the first step towards us and we moved with him. That means one day when we stand before him and when he says, Brian, why are you here? We are going to bow down, prostrate before him and say, because of sheer grace, Father. Sheer grace. That's the way the Bible says we're going to answer that question. It's our first observation this morning. It's the new life, John says, that God gives. At the same time, we know it doesn't stop there. And that the new life, John says, that God gives becomes the new life that Christians live. And God's the initiator. He's the director. We are still called to play a part. We've got to be involved. And it's, it's almost like you could, I mean, this, is, this analogy breaks down in all kinds of ways, but it's almost like you could say the Christian life's kind of like scuba diving, and God has given us the oxygen. You don't have that, you're not going anywhere. You are dead in the water. But with that, he says, you still got to swim. I'm supplying you the life, you've still got to swim. And, and when we live that life, it is defined by three particular things that John mentions here in these first couple verses and things that we've seen in the book, and those are love, obedience, and faith. Three defining things of the new life that we live. Let's look at those real quick. If you have your Bible, first love, verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. So, we're coming back to that idea that we've talked about over and over again in the series that that John's been reminding us that if someone has experienced new life in Jesus Christ, that love that they have experienced now in God is now intended to pour out into the lives and the relationships between Christians, our lives, and our our love for other people. Or for, verse 1, whoever's been born of him. We're intended to love and serve others. And for Christians, our love for God and our love for other people, they are always intended to go hand in hand. They are distinct from each other. They are never intended to be separate. They always go together. So love, also obedience. So the life, John says, that God gives us becomes a life where we are attentive and we listen to the things that he says and then we seek and faithfulness and gratitude to live it out, to live out the things he talks about. This is why he talks about that, use that word commandments three times in verses two through three. If you have that in front of you, verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God. How or when? When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, notice John's saying something here that is not what we usually expect him to be saying. Because in this book so far, he's been talking about our love for other people as really being a test of of our love for God. Here, what he's doing is he's saying it's the other way around. How does John say we know if we really love other Christians? We love God and we love his commandments. That's how, he says, Christians, you want to know if you're loving other Christians is you love God and you love The things that he has taught you, these things are all bound up together. So, love, obedience, and then faith. Faith, look at verse four. John starts talking about the world, and he says this For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. And if you're hearing this for the first time, you could could be looking at this passage and going, what is John talking about when he talks about the world as something to be overcome? Is is John down on the world? Is he against the world? Remember, we talked about this a number of weeks ago when we were in chapter two and looking at verse 15 as as John talked about the command for us to not love the world as disciples. And we thought, well, that's kind of weird because it talks in other places about God loving the world and, and giving himself for the world. What is he talking about there? And we saw that when, when John says that, he's, um, and when Jesus is ultimately commanding this, he's not talking about uh, not loving the world in terms of the created order. It's, it's not like he's against the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, that the created world is a bad place or human beings are bad. Do you remember this? He talks about the world as the place or the domain of our rejection of God and that rejection being defined what by what? Do you remember what he said in chapter two? He says, the, all the things in the world... And he talked about the desires of the flesh. He talked about the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. John's saying, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we've overcome these things. Now, some of you might hear that and think, well, I don't feel like I've overcome those things. What in the world does he mean? He's not saying that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, we've talked about this before, that these things, these struggles that we may have, and they manifest themselves in different ways For every one of us here, these things that we experience, it's not like they're magically gone. Remember, that word for overcome, it's the same word that we have for for subdued. When someone subdues somebody else, it's not as if that person just disappears, but we do know the question of, of subduing, of overcoming, is who has more authority over whom? And what this is saying is that as Christians, we've overcome these things, these inner realities that we've been reading about. We've overcome them, specifically how? By putting our faith in the one who has overcome them, in Jesus Christ and in his dying and being raised from the dead. He has overcome these things and we're now united to him through faith and we're united to his righteousness. And that means when it comes to these things, if you're visiting, this is not a church of perfect people. I'm not a perfect priest. We are flawed people. We still struggle with these things. We're just not defined by them. In the same way anymore, we're not mastered by them because we have been freed through and by putting our faith in the one that has conquered them once and for all. And so, all these things—love, obedience, faith—these are these are just simple reminders of things that we've been reading about in the book. For those of us who have been given new life by God, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He gave you new life. What He's saying reminding us, is that it doesn't stop there. We now, y'all, have a totally different way of going about life, and that is doing things that outside of the Spirit of God being given to us as His people, we could not do. Loving Him. Loving other people. Not just being polite to people. Not just being nice to them, but loving them. Loving Him more than the world. Loving the things that He's taught. All these things are things that we are called to do. It's a new life that He gives. It's a new life that we lead, that we live. Now, do we exhaust chapter five? Absolutely not. <laughs> we've, we barely touched on it, uh, and I confess that to you. I, what I do want to do though is for the, for the sake of our time, I want to wrap up this series by with just a couple thoughts. Again, we've been saying from the beginning. John's writing to, and by that I mean from the series, John was writing to a group of Christians that were living in a time that was very confusing. And Christians, because of what was going on, were really struggling with knowing what to believe and knowing how to live. And what he's done with this book, I mean, this is John's answer to those questions to try to give confidence to them. That's why when you look at the section in chapter five, I believe, if you look right above verse 13, John shares, it it summarizes it, that you may know. And if you keep reading, John is writing his his listeners, his hearers and readers to know they can have confidence as they go about the Christian life. They can have clarity about these two things, knowing what to believe and how to live. And so maybe just as we come to the end of the series, we could ask ourselves a question or two about that. as, As we think about all the different things that we've seen him writing about and reminding us as we've ascended, remember that image we've been working with, that that spiral staircase of this letter and coming upon again and again, things that he reminds us are a part of the Christian life that we're seeing every time with new eyes and in new ways. Have there been any particular areas where you felt you've needed confidence? Okay, maybe in the area of knowing what to believe. You know, even the question of, who really Jesus is. We talked about this at the beginning of the series. People making all kinds of claims about who the person Jesus of Nazareth was. Just wait till the end of Lent leading up to Easter and you're gonna see a new special on in US News World Report or on the History Channel making all kinds of provocative claims. We know as we read this and as what John says, he was a man that lived in time and space and history. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. He is some, someone historians agree really lived, and then John goes on to say, we have seen him, y'all. We've heard him. We touched him. Maybe you've needed some clarity on that. Maybe you've needed clarity on knowing, y'all, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what sin keeps occurring in your life and that you wrestle wrestle with, you've been forgiven. If you've put your faith in him and you're seeking to walk in him, you don't have to hang your head low around him. Or as it says in that first chapter, that we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're adopted sons and daughters. We confess and and we don't, as it says in our bulletin, we don't try to earn back his love. We confess because we're made for intimacy with him. We're honest with him. And then we know we have been forgiven. And when it comes to our sin, it's forgotten. Maybe you've needed that sort of clarity. Or, Maybe you've needed a little bit more clarity. I think that's probably where I've needed more on knowing how to live. And especially this call that is on all of us as followers of Jesus to love other men and women and children that are followers of Jesus. Other Christians, we again, talked about this last week. If you weren't there, maybe even go listen to it online. John said, as Christians, we are called to this love for one another. And we know this is not uh, mere Southern pleasantries. This is costly love. It's a love that is willing to pay a price. And we said the only way that you can actually give that and the only way that we can receive that is by being in community with one another, by being members of the body. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 12. You remember that? And that's tough for us because we are living in a day and an age where we on one hand want community and we want other people. We talk all this about community. And at the same time, we are incredibly individualistic. And we think we can do this thing, the Christian life on our own. John says you can't. Paul says you were made to be a member. Is it that? Whatever it is, wherever you've noticed yourself lacking confidence in these things over the last number of weeks, I hope that John's provided encouragement to you in those areas or that particular area. And if you sense in any way that you need help with that, remember this promise from him in chapter 5, verse 14, that he says, and you can can stake your life on this, that when we pray in accordance with his will, he will hear us and he will answer us. Let me pray for that now. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you took that step towards us and that you have called us as men and women, children are following you. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would shine a spotlight on our hearts and our lives, even at this moment, Lord, and identify for us where we are struggling with these things in our trust in you, in our knowledge of you, maybe in our willingness to listen to you and to live as you've called us. And then Lord, please, by the power of your spirit and through a fierce dependence on you, Lord, would you work in us that we would be changed, as the people of God, and that you would receive all the glory in this church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.